Hello and welcome to the Hunt, Find, Alert K-9 Search and Rescue podcast, the podcast where we discuss everything related to the world of search and rescue. I'm your host, Zephyrin Allen, and thank you for joining us today. We have a very special guest, a good friend of mine for our discussion around legal considerations in K-9 Search and Rescue, Mr. Kelly Case. Hi, Kelly. How are you doing today? Hi, Zephyrin. Thanks for having me. I'm doing good. Great, great. Glad to hear it. Thank you so much for joining. So for this discussion today, we want to talk about some of the legal aspects around K-9 Search and Rescue. As we both know, uh, part of Search and Rescue is dealing with the legal system and more specifically the criminal legal system. And there's many aspects of that that we want to kind of dig into today. Before we do that, I think it'd be good for the listeners out there, Kelly, for you to kind of introduce yourself and talk about both your legal background as well as, as well as your search and rescue background. So, Kelly, do you want to dive into your backgrounds there? Sure. I've been a lawyer. This is I'm entering my 30th year now. I graduated from Tulane Law School in 90, 92, I think. That's right. 92, 93, 92. And uh, after getting out of law school, I went to the Galveston District Attorney's Office where I was a prosecutor for four years. And after that, I became a criminal defense attorney for the next almost two decades. Um, I was one of six attorneys that are, were certified in my county to do capital murder death cases. Uh, I did, was a, one of a hundred attorneys appointed in the Southern uh, region of Texas for federal court appointments representing indigent criminal defendants. Um, in 2012, I uh, ran for office and the people saw fit to elect me as the judge of the Ninth District Court of Montgomery County, Texas, where I served as the lead criminal judge uh, for the county. I was the only board certified criminal judge at that time. And so I ended up getting a lot of the more serious cases. And so um, I've seen in addition to the thousands of cases I've handled through the years, I saw several thousand cases uh, within a year of being on the bench. I served for four years. I left the bench after one term. I, I did what I set out to do, and, and it wasn't a career for me. It was just something that I, I saw some corrections that were needed. So I re-entered uh, criminal defense, and since 2017, I've been in private practice. And then as of last week, I have officially retired. So that is my background. <laughs> All right, good deal. So for all the listeners out there, Kelly is now a happy man uh, <laughs> now that he has finally reached retirement. So good for him. So I, just a, a clarifying question, because we do have listeners from across the country and, and perhaps internationally as well. Uh, so you mentioned that you were a judge for the Ninth District Court here in the state of Texas. Um, for those just just who may not be aware, can you describe the type of cases that a district court handles in Texas, whereas it, it may compare to some of the other states? They may call it a, a superior court or, or various language that they may use. What types of cases do district courts here in Texas? District courts in Texas hear anything uh, civil uh, that's worth over $100,000. Uh, and they hear any sort of felony, which means more than a year's worth of imprisonment. In my court, because I was a criminal, a board certified criminal lawyer, I handled only criminal cases. I did not handle a whole lot of civil cases. Occasionally, other judges would have overflow that I would accept when we didn't have a case going. But primarily, I tried very serious criminal cases, everything from burglaries, had a few capital murders, all the way down to 
I'm trying to think of some of the least serious felonies that we had. Probably drug possession would be some of the least amount of the things that we saw. So um, drug possession is important because uh, that's usually where I would see the canine searches happening. I didn't have any cases involving, when I sat on the bench, I didn't have any cases involving search and rescue dogs. I only had police dogs doing drug searches. And fortunately, I had very a very good teacher, I guess you'd say, a mentor when I was in the prosecutor's office that um, I was fortunate enough to kind of branch out and take cases that I wanted to take. And most of those were the drug possession case with canines. So I got familiar with how the police officers train the canines, their lingo, what they did, looked for, what the dogs uh, were trained to respond to. And it, it helped me when I was on the bench because the, the training is still pretty much the same. It's probably 20 years later. So I felt pretty grateful to be able to, to have a limited, and I say that <laughs> I'm probably exaggerating my limited knowledge, but, um, yeah. but it, it was very helpful at the time. Um, but yeah, so I dealt with more serious felonies and uh, lots and lots of drug possession cases. Good deal. And, and, and one thing that I do want to pick up on there, do, have you seen any overlap uh, from your experience in dealing with drug possessing cases where dogs are, are handled versus the search and rescue world, specifically when you talk about uh, cadaver cases and, and, and missing folks? Do you see any overlap there between either the dog training or more specifically, probably the report writing and the training logs that are, that are need to be maintained between the two? Yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head. The report writing is crucial in both. And uh, the, the training is pretty similar. I mean, you know, dogs have been trained the same way for a hundred years. So that, that's kind of, we're getting better at it. We, we're learning more and more, um, but the methods are there and they're pretty much the same. What, what the big similarities that I noticed were, um, there, there were really good officers and there were a few bad pickles in the bunch and the bad ones were consistently bad and the good ones were consistently good. So it seemed to fall back on their training and their openness and willingness to learn. And that's, that's more of a human trait than anything else. But I noticed that if they were open to criticism and were open to learning, they usually made a, a very good team with their dog. Um, if they weren't, then what happened was they would try and justify what their dog was doing or what they saw in nine times out of 10, a, a, even a halfway decent defense attorney can tear them apart on the stand, um, which is another thing that is extremely important. And I'm, I'm sure we're going to talk about um, it's important to be 100% honest when you are on that witness stand, because the defense attorney is not going to ask a question that they don't know the answer to. And if you think you're going to fib to them and get away with it, you're digging your own grave. So I saw that a couple of times. It wasn't pretty. Um, it's pretty unfortunate when it happened um, because it not only it's a disappointment because the police can't prove their case, but more importantly, it casts doubt on that officer's testimony from there until he's no longer a police officer. So it's, it's kind of tragic when that happens. So those are the things that I saw that were, were similar to what we do in search and rescue. And you, you know, I'm, I mean, I say, you know, you do know, I am adamant about anyone testifying honestly in, 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 there's nothing wrong with rehearsing your testimony. There's nothing wrong with learning how to write a better report. Um, but where I see people failing in, in doing that is when they try and exaggerate 
or make up things that didn't really happen. Just trying to, and it may just be something as innocent as they don't remember it very well and they're trying to act like they do. And so it comes off wrong. But as a defense attorney, and I've, I've done it for 20 years, it's very easy to catch somebody in a lie like that. And so I always tell team members and anybody we work with, just write the report like you're explaining what's happening to somebody that has no idea and be extremely honest to the point of being painfully honest, even acknowledging your own weakness if it comes to that. Yeah, I, I think that's great context. And, you know, one of the things that we preach on our team is is that honesty. And, you know, when you talk about and you describe the change of behavior of your dog or you you, you talk about and describe the, the trained final response of your dog, specifically in your training logs, no dog is perfect. Uh, mm -hmm. And so if your dog has a miss during training, the important thing is not to hide it or, or lie about it. The important thing is to document that miss in training. And then in your comments say, hey, here's what I'm going to do to fix that moving forward. So I, I think, thank you for pointing that out. We'll, we'll definitely dive into that more a little bit later. Uh, but before we do, let's talk about your search and rescue background for a bit. So we kind of established your, your legal expertise. Kind of tell us what you've done in search and rescue. I started search and rescue in Atlanta, Georgia with the team over there, a really good team, a strong team. Uh, and, and they really helped me learn the ropes. I, I got into this because my dog's nose was always on the ground. And I just thought, I, I bet she'd be pretty good at this. I didn't have any idea what I was getting into. I, I, I have to tell you that. <laughs> None um, of us do. <laughs> I, you know, they told me, oh, it's a lot of work. And I thought, oh, it's, you know, what could it, what could how much work could it be? I'm going to be playing with my dog. It'll be fun. No worries. <laughs> I had no idea this was going to turn into a full-time job and weekends too. Um, and I love it. I mean, it's, 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 it's very, very enjoyable, but it's a lot of work. I got into it. Like I told you, because I just happened to get a dog that, that seemed to have an inclination towards doing it. And with the help of the, the team in Atlanta, um, I was able to train her up to a, to a certain degree uh, she wasn't finished when we were moved over to, to Texas, moved back to Texas, I should say. And then with Mark 9, of course, we have some fantastic trainers on our team that were able to help me get her finished, get her certified. And uh, we've been active on searches now for, I think we're going into our third year now as a team. Um, so my background is, I think I've probably gone on anywhere from 20 to 30 searches. It's hard to remember off the top of my head because half the time I'm asleep <laughs> or half asleep <laughs> when we get called out. But um, I've had some, some interesting ones. Of course, you know, 90% of it's just boredom and, and doing the routine and, and making sure you do everything you're supposed to do. But that 10% when the excitement hits is, uh, man, there's, just, there's no better feeling than, than being able to help somebody or help a family and, and give them some answers and some peace. Yeah, I'd agree 100%. One of the, the episodes that we'll have to do at some point in the future is for new folks out there looking into getting the search and rescue, what you can expect, because I think mm. all of us go through that when they tell you, oh, it's a lot of work. And we think, yeah, but we can handle it. But <laughs> you, if you're doing it right, it is a lot of work, but it's so rewarding if, if you're doing it correctly. So let's transition from there. And just to, as a as a disclaimer for the folks listening, uh, Kelly and I are on the same team. So when he mentions Mark Nine Search and Rescue, that's the same team I'm on. So Kelly and I have quite a history. We've we've had some good searches together and and had a good time together over the last mm -hmm. few years that he's been here in Dallas. So, but I want to allow him to talk about his dog Coco. Um, she's amazing. I love her. But I, I I'll let Kelly uh, tell you all a little bit more about Coco. 
Coco is is not the normal rescue dog, I guess. I, I get all kind of questions about her. She is a Legoto Romagnolo. It's an Italian breed of dog. They're, they were recognized by the AKC in 2015, I believe. And there's, at the time, right now, I think there's probably less than 700 of them in the United States. And that's a rough estimate. They're more of an Italian breed. And what they're known for is hunting truffles. So they have a highly developed sense of smell. Um, testing it, it's it's akin to a bloodhound's sense of smell. And so I, I got her originally because they're hypoallergenic. My wife has allergies. And um, I thought, you know, gosh, I... I don't want my wife to suffer me have a pet. So we got a hypoallergenic dog. Well, it turns out this dog's nose is always on the ground. And I thought, you know, I, I bet you can make a good search and rescue dog. And that sounds fun. I could get outside and I love outdoors and fishing and being in the woods. And that'd be a fun thing to do. So I'm going to go try and do that. So she ends up, she turns out she's a rock star at it. Um, she, uh, can drag me through the woods, uh, <laughs> just like I'm behind a big German shepherd. And it, it's, it's really interesting to learn as I've, as the last four years of us working together to get to the point of getting certified. Um, it's really been interesting to learn her body language and see how she, I don't have a better way to explain how she communicates with me. Um, and, and we've, we've really formed a bond where, I mean, I literally don't go anywhere without my dog. And I'm sure most search and rescue people are like that. Yeah. But um, that was one of the reasons why I retired was because they kept wanting me to come into the office all the time and I didn't want to leave my dog. <laughs> <laughs> so Kelly's not telling the full story, so I'm going to fill it in for the listeners here. And I think what we'll probably have to do, Kelly, is get a picture of her and uh, post it on the Facebook page oh, okay. uh, so everyone can see her. So she looks like a teddy bear. Uh, and she is the best PR dog I've ever seen. The kid, number one, she looks like a teddy bear. The kids love her. She loves kids. She'll sit, she'll roll over, she'll lay down, and then she'll play ball all day with the kids. So she is the absolute best PR dog I've ever seen. And how much did, does she weigh, Kelly? I know she's, she's fairly small. How much does she weigh? She's 33 pounds. Okay. And so she's 33 pounds, but she tugs like a, like a shepherd. <laughs> so she mm -hmm. is a drivey dog and she is fun. And, and just to clarify, Kelly, what discipline do you work Coco in? A man trailer. Uh, she's a, a level one wilderness certified by American Working Dogs Association. Okay, great. Thank you so much. All right. So we've kind of gone through the precursors and we want to give the listeners out there a good background of of Kelly and kind of his expertise, both in legal as well as the, the search and rescue, um, his search and rescue background as well. I think this would be a good time to go ahead and transition into our discussion for today, which is the legal considerations in canine search and rescue. So there's, there's a few things that we'll want to dig into, Kelly, and we'll just kind of go down the list here. Uh, so I'm going to ask a very high level question and just kind of see what your takeaway is. Do you think, mm -hmm. or from your experience, are there any legal implications that canine search and rescue handlers need to be aware of? Yes, definitely. You know, our, what we do ultimately, uh, there's a great high potential for us to end up in court in, in, in contentious litigation. And there is no more serious case than a murder case or a capital murder case that you can be involved with. Those are typically going to attract the best of the best defense attorneys and prosecutors. 
So you can expect that your records are going to be picked over. You can expect that your testimony is going to be picked over. And I, I, I don't want to scare people because honestly, 99% of the cases that go into the court, the legal system on a criminal matter, plead out. Both sides recognize the fact that a trial is not in everyone's benefit. And that's what plea bargains are there for. And it's a, it's a, it's a good system. It works. It's not perfect. You know, it's, it's designed and it's, uh, it's, uh, we employ humans in every phase of it and, and we all have faults. So it, it is not a perfect system. And I hear people say, oh, our legal justice system is broken. No, no, it's not broken. It works better than any other place in the world, believe me. But we have human flaws that are built into it. And so things don't always go the way that we think they should. There are huge implications for search and rescue. What we do in especially cadaver dogs, um, man trailing, uh, water search and rescues, all of the disciplines that we train in day in and day out have the potential to be called into court. And what I what I tell, and you know, I, I talk about this on our team. Don't expect that your records a year from now are going to be, your memory is going to be the, so good that you don't even need to look at those records. Those records are literally going to be the only thing that you can recall. Some, some teams go on 100 searches a year. There's no way you can recall the details of every search. You must take good notes. And so those notes are what's going to save you if you ever get into any sort of litigation. And the thing that people don't realize is how long litigation can potentially go on for. There is a case, a very famous case in Texas called Penry, Penry versus State, P-E-N-R-Y. It has gone up and down to the Supreme Court three times that I know of in the last 25 years. So that means... If you were a search and rescue person on that case, your notes and your testimony would be going up and down to the Supreme Court over the next 25 years. So you have to keep good records. That's the main thing I tell everybody. And when I mean when I say good records, I mean very detailed reports that can walk a person through the, the scenario that has never set foot in that area, that has never seen anybody there and knows nothing about the area. You have to paint that picture literally in their head so they understand everything you're doing. And that's not easy for a lot of people. It, it is very hard. It took me, even doing it day in and day out, it took me probably 15 years before I could really write very well to where it could be understood and, and I could paint that picture for other people. So I, I'm, I'm not a good writer by nature, um, but because of my job, I had to learn how to do it. And it's not easy. So I, I actually, and, and we've done this, as you know, in our training, written reports so that I can critique the reports and kind of point out to people how you can improve things you need to watch out for. It's, it's an ongoing learning process. It's not something you can do one time and learn it, forget about it, and think you're going to write a great report. You have to constantly be working at it. So I probably went into a little too much detail, but yes, there are some severe legal implications to a canine search that involve your records, your testimony, uh, even your actions on the scene, because you, you never know who's going to snap a photograph of you when you're in the middle of that search. You definitely don't want to be seen telling a joke or, or uh, sleeping on the job or, or doing anything that you shouldn't be doing. Um, you know, you're there for a reason. It's a very serious reason. And everybody looks to you, including the police, to tell them what to do when you're on that search. So um, it, it's, it's extremely serious and has some, some very high level political, uh, some legal implications, I should say. 
No, that that's great information. And I think it's important for all the handlers out there to hear that because, you know, hey, Kelly, I, I just want to show up in a week on the weekend and play with my dog. I don't I don't take this very seriously. I'm just coming out to, to meet people and play with my dog and be able to go home and tell my friends that I have a search and rescue dog. I, I think that's the, the mindset that that we have seen in some instances. But truthfully speaking, this is an, an incredibly serious matter. You're dealing with people's lives. Um, and in some cases, life and death. And ultimately, none of us want to be the reason that someone gets off from a criminal case. We want to make sure that we're covering ourselves and taking care of the people who need us. It's, would you agree with that, Kelly? Absolutely. I mean, even if you do everything 100% correct, the case can still go bad for some other reason. So we need to be as good as we can be every single time we go out there. And yeah, there, there is a place for people that want to have those weekend jaunts with their dogs. And I certainly started off thinking that that was my mentality. This is a weekend thing and I'm going to get to spend time with my dog. But as you get into it and you realize how serious it is, that's okay. If that's your mentality, don't join a search and rescue team. If you're going to join a search and rescue team, you need to understand that there are implications. People are counting on you. I mean, you could have the police of the chief of police out there and you're telling him where he needs to go and where he needs to stand. Because when you're on a search, you're in charge. The police are assisting you, but you're the one who makes the decisions. You decide what your dog's going to do and you decide where your dog's going to go. So I can't emphasize enough. I, I was very naive, you know, I, and I, I thought I could do this because I had a good dog. And probably the only reason I could do this is because the dog was good. I had no idea of what to do. But I remember, and you know, when we get into the stories part of of uh, telling what's happened in the past, I remember going on one search in particular, and it just it, it literally I I grew up twenty years of my search and rescue in that one search because it was important and it was serious and it was stressed to us by the FBI and we were there to help them and you know there's there's no other than the IRS i don't think anybody has more power and jurisdiction than the FBI in this country so it becomes very serious sometimes all right yeah that that's a great answer and hopefully the the handlers out there take that to heart so let's pivot from that cuz i think to that point the question that needs to be asked is so me as a handler if i do something wrong could there be potential legal uh, implications for me, both either civil or criminal? So if I'm negligent or just lazy, uh, could there be consequences to me directly if I'm out there as a handler and I'm not taking care of the business that I should be taking care of? Typically, just uh, mere negligence is, is not going to get you into trouble. Where I see and where I have seen police possibly search and rescue people getting into trouble is, is when it's, it's intentional. I, I think, you know, everybody is going to make a mistake that, that, that is, that is forgivable. Making a mistake and then lying about it, however, is not forgivable. So it, it, it's kind of a fine line. If you do something wrong, I'm going to, I'm going to say that that means that you're doing something to intentionally either sabotage the search or intentionally make the search into something that it's not. And what I mean by that is you say, we're on the track, we're fighting this person and we've got them here and they went here, but we lost the scent. And that's not what the dog is indicating. You're just making up a story. Then yes, there can be severe criminal implications. You could be misleading the police. You could be costing valuable time and resources going in one direction that should not be 
should not be followed. You could be misleading the family who is desperately hoping to find their loved one. It can have very serious, both legal and moral implications. Um, I, I, I have a strong, I have strong views about people that get into this and um, the know-it-alls, I guess is the best way to say it. <laughs> uh, yep. I, I, I think if you're going to do something, then you need to be open to learning and you need to be open to criticism, mainly just to help yourself learn. And if you don't have that openness and if you're not willing to say, you know what, I'm, I messed up, let me regroup and, and rethink this and I'm going to try it this way next time. If you're not able to do that, then I, I really don't think that search and rescue is the is the place for people like that. Because if you've made up your mind on how you're going to do something and you know everything already, believe me, it, it, it truly takes a village to raise one of these dogs. Because, I mean, our whole team, when we go out, is involved in hiding for the dog, helping the dog search, uh, assisting in placing the, the, uh, the cadaver samples, um, the human remains out there. And it's just, it takes a lot of people to get one dog trained up and it takes a lot of time. I want to stay on topic because you're, you're pretty specific with your question, but I think the consequences that I've seen have occurred primarily for people that were intentionally doing something they shouldn't be doing. And, and it was probably out of a, it started, I have one officer in mind that I'm thinking of. It, it, it probably started as, as in his mind, a good thing. He, he felt like he knew somebody was guilty. He fabricated the evidence and that person was convicted. And that person probably should have been convicted. But unfortunately, the damage that's done when that happens is not only to that case, but to every other literal case that guy has ever touched, seen, or worked on. Mm -hmm. And that is unforgivable, in my opinion. And so, yes, prosecutors will get very, very upset in that instance and will come after you. So there can be some serious implications to this. Yeah. So if I restate that another way, so let's say I I go out on the search and, and X, Y, Z happens on the search, but I go back and do my search report and I described A, B, and C that didn't actually happen on the search that could go fall into the category which you just discussed where that that is absolute misconduct because what you're describing did not happen and so because of that i i've risked the case i've risked my reputation and i, I risk ultimately the the reputation of my team because i didn't describe what actually happened on the search good bad or ugly is, is that an accurate assessment Yes, I think that's very, you, you said it much more succinctly than I could have yes. <laughs> So then let, let's ask the question, because uh, we often hear about Good Samaritan laws. Do they apply to SAR team members? Yes, Texas has pretty specific Good Samaritan laws, and we're, we're, we're pretty fortunate about that. Texas is actually, uh, you know, I live here, so I think it's one of the better places to live um, legally. Uh, and it's uh, Section 74.151 of the Texas Civil Practice and Remedies Code, if anybody cares to look that up. Um, and it is a Good Samaritan. So that basically, if you are in, if you are assisting someone or helping someone, you believe that someone needs medical attention, you cannot be legally found at fault or civilly liable for any damages that occur. Um, what that means is typically the, the scene we think of is there's an accident, you pull over on the side of the road, something happens while you're helping the person and the person dies and the family sues you. In Texas, that doesn't, it can't happen. 
So we're pretty insulated. Even civilians have that insulation. SAR members have an additional immunity that's that's it's sort of a qualified immunity is probably the best way to say it. So we are immune. However, if you do anything outside of your search and rescue team's stated purpose and goals, I'm trying to think of an example, if you're walking by, uh, if you're walking by a playground and you're in the middle of a search and you see a child choking and help the child, you're probably going to be insulated. If you are walking past the playground and you see two kids fighting and you break them apart and tell them don't do that and one of them gets mad and says you hurt his arm and sues you because of it you probably will not be insulated from civil damages it's kind of a fine line but for for the purposes of what we're, we're doing here tonight that search and rescue teams are pretty much covered as long as they don't go past or go beyond their stated purpose which is to find human remains, man trailing, uh, drowning victims, stay within within your wheelhouse on those and you should be fine. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think you mentioned earlier that that's the law within the state of Texas. So I think we could appreciate that the law may be slightly different in some of the other states. Is, yes, is that that is ex that's extremely important and accurate. I, I am licensed in Georgia. I, I do know Georgia laws. That is the only other state. Every state has its own individual codes, and they're all interpreted different. There are certain codes that are based on the federal model. They're called the model states, and they're very similar. But the interpretation, the word, the laws could be worded exactly the same between, say, Texas and Colorado. But the interpretation of that law and the statutes and the cases that come out because of it will be totally different. So... I don't want anybody to hear what I'm saying is Texas law and apply that in New York or Michigan or Ohio or anywhere else. I only know Texas law. And so that's what I'm basing this on. So there's this term out there that it is called a, a you know, an expert witness or given expert testimony. So this is kind of a two part question. First, first part of the question, are SAR handlers considered to be expert witnesses or provided expert testimony? Yes or no. And then the, the follow up to that question, well, what's the difference between a, a search and rescue team member who finds, let's say, a, a deceased person with their dog versus the farmer who's out uh, with his dog and his dog also finds a deceased person? Why is that person looked at differently than the search and rescue member? That is a great question. And that is a, it, it, it asked me for a very detailed answer. So bear with me. OK, sure. In Texas, we have we have a test called the Neno test. It's it's uh, it's a Supreme Court case uh, that was decided. Um, gosh, I can't even remember the year. I'll have to look up the site and give it to you. But that test is what we use to determine an expert. Experts can testify in criminal cases. There are two types of experts. There's a consulting expert and there's a testifying expert. Testifying experts are the ones obviously that come into a courtroom testify based on their expertise. Their expertise can be found from several different sources. They can be an expert by way of their training. They can be an expert by way of their research and studies that they've done. There are many different ways to become an expert. However, in search and rescue, there's only one way that we become experts. And we are considered experts not in the field of canine training, which a lot of people mistake because you know your dog, they think that means you know every dog uh, and you don't. 
we are considered experts in knowing our dog's behaviors. And the reasons we can qualify as an expert is because we have records of their training. They must, and this is a Texas rule, I don't know how this works across other states, that the dogs that we use must be certified through a nationally recognized program. Doesn't matter which program, there are several out there, but they must be nationally certified. If they are not nationally certified and you do not have training records going back, I would say at least two years, sufficient to show a decent amount of training to get your dog up to that certification level, you cannot qualify as an expert in the state of Texas. And the way I always explain this, because it always comes up, you know, somebody read an article and they're an expert. Well, I read Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Model uh, <laughs> magazine, and it doesn't make me a swimsuit model, okay? I am not an expert in that. So you can read an article about it. You can study it all you want. It's not going to make you an expert. Search and rescue teams, search and rescue handlers are considered experts for legal purposes in a criminal matter under a limited set of circumstances. And that's why our reports are so important. Our records of our training are so important. And any it, it's rare that you're going to see somebody testify more than a few times, a handful of times. But if you've testified, you, you need to make that known as well. If you've qualified in another court as an expert, that is that is a little leg up that you'll have. So to be clear, search and rescue handlers can be experts in their own dog's behavior, provided they have the records and this national certification that must be in place. There have been many, many cases, and I have seen several of them in Texas and many outside of Texas, where a handler is not nationally certified, has the training records, failed to get the national certification, went out on a search and rescue, and their testimony was deemed inadmissible. Now, what that would mean in Texas is, it's it, it, well, it's everywhere. It's a Supreme Court case. It's considered, to make it simple, it's considered damaged evidence. It's called fruit of the poisonous tree. If that evidence is no good and that handler's testimony is thrown out, everything that was learned from his testimony and every piece of evidence that was gained from his testimony and the dog is thrown out. It could cost the case. It could cost the police to lose the case. It could cost the DA to lose the case and could set somebody free that really doesn't need to be around the rest of us. Yeah, that's, that's great information. And, and I think I just want to clarify just really quickly. So when you mentioned national certification, there's multiple organizations out there. I won't name them all, but uh, NSDA, National Search Dog Association, AWDA, American Working Dog Association, uh, NAS NASAR, uh, National Association of Search and Rescue. Uh, it's alphabet soup. But, but your point is, is that a third party outside certification is important. I think you mentioned the Nino case to establish yourself as an expert plus your training logs. Is that accurate? So both, both the training logs plus an outside certification. Did I get that correct? Yes, that's absolutely correct. The, the nano test is, is simple. It's a three prong test. It's, it's that whether or not the, the field that we're training in dog scent training is a legitimate one and it has been recognized. So that's usually not the, an issue. The second part of the test is whether the subject matter of the expert's testimony, the dog handler, was within the scope of his of the field of, of dog training, dog scent training. Um, again, not usually where it's contested. Where it's contested is the expert's testimony properly relied upon and utilized the appropriate principles in the field. If 
the dog handler is doing something that is so unique that nobody has ever done it before in training their dog, chances are they're not going to be qualified as an expert. If you're not following what your canine lead trainer tells you to do and you're doing something totally different, you're probably not going to qualify as an expert. I mean, that that's the reason that person is there is to help guide you with all of the other structure that's in place and keep you on track and keep your dog on track. So, you know, there's always there's always somebody who luckily we don't have any on our team, but I'm sure at some point we will. There's always somebody that wants to do it different and they don't need to listen to anybody else because they know their dog better than you do. And that is wonderful. You know, go do agility training and go do scent training with some other place, but don't be on a search and rescue team because the only way we can qualify as experts is through these training logs showing that we've done everything. And your example was perfect, by the way. Your dog has a weakness, you document that weakness, and then you show what you're going to do. You show that you did it and you show the improvement in your dog because the next time you, you go to, to do that same example, the dog gets it right this time. You show a record of how you fix the problem. That is very, very important for a judge to see. And the other thing I'll tell you about these reports, and, and we have a team member that tells a story, you have those reports and you walk into court with your five boxes or two boxes or whatever of your three ring binder reports that are just stacked to the brim. And the defense attorney is going to look at that and go, yeah, we're good. Don't need to question them. But you walk in there with five or six sheets of paper going, hey, here's my records. <laughs> You're going to be on the stand for a day or two trying to, to qualify yourself as an expert. It's not going to happen. Yeah. So I think the important takeaway there and is, is training logs are crucially important. And I think you mentioned at least two years of, of, of training logs, but, but I think your, your bigger point was you just keep them forever. Cause you mentioned the, the case here in Texas, where it's been 24, 25 years going up and down to the Supreme court. And so there's no reason to ever destroy your training logs is what I'm hearing. You should keep them forever with the, with the appreciation that at some point that, particular case could come back up. So let me, uh, a question I'll ask from that then. So let's say I go out on the search, my team goes out on the search and we don't find anything. Should I still keep those search reports? We didn't yes. find anything? Okay. Yes. I know it, it seems almost counterintuitive, but the reason reports are so important is because at some point, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't want to jinx anybody, but Things happen to people, you know, dementia is a possibility. One out of two people by the time they're 80 has dementia. Uh, accidents happen. People get into car accidents. Anything could happen. And those records could be the only thing that survives eight to 10 years down the road when this comes up again on appeal. Uh, and that's what people don't understand. You know, I get asked all the time, well, how long should I keep my records? Forever. I keep them in both a digital format and a paper format. I print out uh, after I finish putting together my uh, training re report, uh, I, I print it out and I save a digital copy. I save the digital copy in four different places. I save it on a flash drive. I save it on a separate, I don't know what you call this thing, a separate external hard drive. I save it on my computer hard drive itself and I save it on the cloud. The reason I do that is because I suffered a catastrophic computer failure back in 2006 a few days before a murder trial and lost uh, about two years worth of work in over 400 different exhibits. So I, I don't trust digital. I, I make sure I have a paper printout copy. Um, and how long do I keep it? Forever. Unfortunately, 
an appeal takes anywhere from five to 10 years to be ruled on at the, at the state level to get to the Supreme court, you're talking, it could be another five or 10 years. So I don't ever like to see anybody destroy their records. I prefer there to be a central repository for them. And if those records, if you ever destroy those records and have not made copies of them, or they haven't been admitted into evidence previously and they're lost, that case could get overturned and that person could get out and, and, and be free. And it'd just be a horrible miscarriage of justice just because you didn't think it was important to keep your records long enough. So I always just say, you know what, it's inconvenient. And I don't know how long I'm going to do this. My knees are going out. My shoulders have gone, <laughs> but I'm going to have the, I, I might just be a torso, but I'm still going to have this record <laughs> sitting in a corner of my office. <laughs> so that leads into the next question. And I think it answered it pretty clearly. And the question was going to be how important it is for, for us to keep our training logs. But I, I want to get a little bit more specific to that question because I, I worry that some people may misunderstand this. Should it, does all this just apply to uh, HRD handlers or does it also apply to, to avalanche handlers and to live fine handlers and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Or is it just HRD handlers that have to be concerned about this? That's a good question. I, you know, because I don't live in an area where I have to worry about avalanches, I, I don't know a lot about what they do. I mean, I've, I've seen it, you know, on the internet and I've looked at it and it's interesting that it, it's scent work. I mean, there's just nothing different about it. It's just the environment's totally different. But the problem is you, you don't know. And that's why we, we have to keep records. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. You know, I don't know if a case is going to go to trial. I don't know if the one thing that I leave out of my report is the most crucial piece that, that they need for me to remember. We just don't know what's going to happen. And so I would rather err on the side of caution and have those records forever than to think, oh, nobody's going to need them. And suddenly I get a call saying, hey, you remember that case 20 years ago that you worked on and uh, do you still have those records? I, I That is my biggest fear is that something so easy to not have happen happens and, and you, you can never recreate them once they're gone. So I think it is important, vitally important that every discipline keep their dog training records even after the dog is, is dead and gone because those records are going to be the only recollection. It's going to be the only thing that sparks your memory about that search. And I don't know about most people. I know that my memory doesn't get better over time. It gets a lot worse. And I'm pretty sure most everybody else's does too. So I want to have those records. It's amazing what I can remember when I'm going through my old records and I see things, I, I, I can smell things, I can feel things. I can put myself back to where I was on that day. I can smell the rain and the grass. I can smell my dog. I can, I can remember how the dog was looking at me and I was laughing and looking at the dog. All those little things that you could never, ever recreate if you didn't have that written record to go by. Good deal. So I, I think I, I'll ask this question, but I, and, and I'm going to ask for a brief answer, but I think what we may consider doing is just doing a separate episode to talk about specifically diving into to training logs and search reports and the information that should be contained in them. But just really briefly, I'm going to ask the question, what are some of the, the high level points that should be contained in your dog's training logs? Well, not to be facetious, but I mean, it's a, it's a how, where, when, why, and who. You need to answer all the questions. I like to, to 
make a story basically of my training log. So I want to know, I want to know the weather. I want to know the temperature. I want to know the humidity, not for any purpose that I need, but I've been told that it's important for the dog's scent ability. Um, and, and, and it is, I mean, I know on cooler days, the scent is going to be lower to the ground. It's much easier for the dog to find the scent on warmer, hotter summer days, especially here in Texas, where it gets up to 110 for a month at a time. Um, the scent is going to be higher. And for a dog that's my dog's size, she's she's not a foot off the ground. It, it's not as easy for her as it would be, say, like somebody with a, a German Shepherd or a Malinois or a, a Bloodhound. Those are bigger dogs. They're taller. They have a better chance at getting a higher scent. So all those things make a difference. So what you need to have in your logs is you need to you need to describe the scene so that somebody who has never been there can picture it in their mind. So that means instead of saying, I went down a hallway and turned left, you need to say there was a hallway facing south that was approximately 10 feet long. I walked five steps before I came across a door on my left, which would be the southward facing direction. I walked five more steps before there was a door on my right that was closed. You know, if you can remember the color of the doorknobs and put that in your report, put that in there too. Everything that is noticeable needs to be in your report, but it needs to be in a story so that it flows from the time that you, from the time you parked your car, got your dog out, harnessed your dog up, your pre-casting routine for us, uh, man trailing, your routine that you normally go through before you give your dog the scent, what you did to give your dog the scent, collecting the scent, how you collected it, or HRD handlers. Uh, I, I don't know that much about what HRD folks do, so my knowledge is a little limited, but it's, it's the same thing. You need to put down from the minute you got the call, what you did. You put on your boots, you got dressed, it took me 10 minutes, I got the call at this time, I was in the trunk by this time, uh, dog was in the kit in the crate ready to go. We arrived on scene at this time. I parked at the south parking lot. We exited, we exited the vehicle. That's that's got to be in every report, in my opinion. We we exited the vehicle and I got the dog out and cast the dog around and uh, describe everything you did. Uh, if you have anything you notice about your dog, may not be a, a final trained response, it may be some indication of interest. Note that your dog showed some interest right here. Um, we never know what's going to be that one little piece of evidence that can change the whole case. And it could be something as simple as a piece of paper or a candy wrapper that's left behind on the ground. Um, we just don't know. So I like to be very, very thorough in my reports. I have no problem writing, you know, two, three page training logs because I want people to know I want to, first of all, remember that day, and I want to be able to look back at that report and remember it, but I also want somebody who is never there to be able to look at that report and say, I, you know, I, I can picture that in my head. That would, If I can do that, I've written a good report. Okay, good deal. So I, I do want to ask a clarifying question because I think you answered my second question that I, that I hadn't asked yet. So what you just described, I think, was an actual search report. Uh, not necessarily your training logs. Is that is that right? I was kind of I was kind of blended on both. Blended on both. Yeah. Okay, just want to make sure. Okay, no problem. But it, it's all great information to have, and and I think my takeaway from that is the more information, the better for the reasons that you described earlier. It may be ten years later, and you just need to 
remember exactly what happened, what the circumstances were, so you can describe them if you are called to court to uh, to talk through the case. Yes, um, because if you if you take the stand and you look at that report and you go, boy, I just don't remember this day. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. You've been released from your testimony. You will not testify as to that report, and that report will not come into evidence. So you have to have a personal recollection of the events or you cannot testify about them in Texas. Great. So I'm going to ask the question. We kind of talked about it earlier, and I'm going to ask all the listeners out there to, to not send any hate mail my way. Uh, so I'm going to ask them to save it and send it to someone else because I won't read it. Uh, but you mentioned it earlier, the, the need for a third party. Uh, we use the term national. I'll, I'll say more generically outside certification on your dog. And I gave a couple of examples earlier. I'm, I, and here's the question I'm going to ask you. You've obviously described how important it is. But the question that may rub some folks the wrong way is, well, what's wrong with me? just having an internal team certification. My team is great. My team goes through all these steps and we do very hard testing. Why is that not good enough? Why do I have to have a third party outside certification? Well, for the same reason that if you were the defendant and you saw the judge and the prosecutor coming back from a good lunch together, laughing and, and <laughs> grabbing each other, you, you would be a little concerned. Um, it, it's, it comes down to objectivity. You, you have to, be able to show that a neutral third party person has come in, shown that you've met the standards that you need to meet and shows that your dog is qualified. It's, it's you know, there's, there's probably some really, really good dogs that don't have a national certification and, and that's okay as long as they're not going out on active searches. You know, if people just wanna train their dog to do this and then that's as far as they wanna go, they don't really wanna some people don't want to see a dead body. I mean, I'll be blunt. Some people don't have a stomach for dealing with that. That's okay. Train your dog. You know, help us train our dogs. That's great. But if you're going to do this and, and, and really go out on real search and rescues where you're part of an active police unit or supporting a police unit, you have to have that objective third-party certification just to show that your dog has met the minimum standards you're able to testify that your dog's met the minimum standards. And, and believe me, any, any even mediocre, even a bad defense attorney gets wind that you don't have a national certification, you are asking for trouble. And I mean, I have made people's lives miserable because they didn't do what they were supposed to do and thought that they were going to walk into court and, and get away with telling a fib. So it's just not worth it. I mean, if you want to be grueled over three days, mercilessly, six hours a day on the, on the witness stand, made to look like a fool and humiliated and your whole life put on camera and on national TV, do it. You know, there's other people that have done it, They'd write a book and probably do pretty well. But for me, I'm, that's, that's the worst thing I could imagine is having to go through something like that. I would rather just follow the rules, do it the right way and have no questions asked later on. And I mean, ultimately... Whether you do or don't get a national certification, your life will be fine. Go on, play with your dog on the weekends, have a great time. But if you jeopardize a case where somebody has lost a loved one, their child's been killed, their child's been kidnapped, their family member has disappeared, and that case is lost, and that person goes free because of what you didn't do, I don't know how somebody could live with themselves just because it's it's too easy to get that third-party certification. It's too easy to have an objective 
person or you, your dog. That's just selfish, in my opinion. And I, I have a very, you know, <laughs> yep, I, I know, <laughs> very, very hard stance on people that think they don't need that national certification because you, it just jeopardizes the entire team. You have one instance of that going to trial. And your whole team will be disbanded. You will never be called on by the police again. You will never be called for an active search. And if that's in your future and that's what you want, that's fine. I would prefer to do everything that I'm asked to do. I would prefer to do everything above what I'm asked to do rather than less than what I'm asked to do. If I'm ever called to the stand, I want to be able to say, you know, Yep, I did all the minimum stuff, but I also did this. And I even made it harder on myself because I did this, this, and this, just to show that my dog can handle whatever comes up. Because I can't think of anything worse than having to look a family in the eye and say, I am so sorry I lost that case, and that person is going to go free for killing your child. That, that to me, would just destroy me. Uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and something that you mentioned earlier was that those national certifications are truly the minimum because it's a, it, it, most of the tests are one day and it's, it's, it's a quick run through, what, whatever the circumstances are. But, but I know our team is this way and I'm sure many SAR teams out there are also the same way. So we require a national certification in order to deploy on the search. But in addition to that, we also have an internal team certification that is harder, much harder and takes much longer than any national certification that I'm aware of. And certainly that that would be the best practice to, to yes. Yeah, so so I think Kelly is saying, yes, you should have your internal team certification, mm -hmm. um, but also have that national certification as a third party objective person who, who can attest to your dog if need be. Is, is that all accurate, Kelly? That's totally accurate. Yes. You, I, I can't say it as good as you did. <laughs> All right, great. So I'll ask just kind of an open-ended question. Is, is there anything else that we need to know? You know, us as SAR handlers, you know, a lot of us are civilians and we don't necessarily have the legal background that you have or the law enforcement background that the folks that we work with have. And so sometimes we go get into this and we, we're not really sure what it is that we're getting into. And I think you've described very well throughout this discussion. No, no, this, this is very serious and you have to take it serious because there are real legal implications, uh, not only to us, as well as to individuals uh, who may go free because of mistakes that we, that we may make. So just to open any question, anything else that's important for any search and rescue handler out there to know whenever we consider legal considerations to the work that we do? Hmm. I guess I categorize this as kind of tips and things that, that I've seen that, that help bring credibility to testimony in the courtroom. A lot of, I can't say a lot, most of the police handlers, police dog handlers that I've seen attended seminars that were held only by police. It's kind of similar to having your own team grade your dog and not going for the national certification. Seminars are very important. You, you, I think everybody should attend seminars. Just you, you, you pick up so much just from everybody there and, and it really helps flesh out your dog's weaknesses. I see a lot of people that, and I'm probably guilty of this too. You know, I just, I had, uh, I had shoulder surgery a few months ago and I haven't been able to do a whole lot. So my dog suffered because of that. I haven't attended seminars this past year because I had a death in the family and it took me out of it for a while, but seminars are, are vitally important and people need to go to those whenever possible. It, it adds a, a level of credibility to your testimony to say, you know what, I'm, I'm 
I'm professional at this. And I'm such a professional that I recognize that there are things that I don't know. And I'm going to the best people in this field to try and learn from them just to improve myself and bring that back to my team and, and bring it to my dog to help my dog get better. Uh, seminars are very important for you to attend. I think that when you have that as part of your resume, your, your CV, when you go into court, it helps the prosecutor qualify you as an expert because that's one of the things that you, you're going to need to show is your attendance at seminars, your continued learning and education that you take this seriously. So that's one thing I'd say. The other thing I'd say is that testifying is hard. It is not a natural thing because the questions that the prosecutor asks they're asked in a way that's totally different from the way a defense attorney is going to ask a question. A prosecutor will ask you, okay, and what happened next? And then what did you do? Giving you these open-ended options to just give an endless narrative. Um, a defense attorney is going to ask you very specific yes or no questions. So your answers are going to be totally different for a defense attorney as they are to a prosecutor. And that's important because... A lot of people want to tell their story. Um, that's, you know, if, you're, if you've ever seen TV, uh, a, legal, a legal show on the TV, that's what they do. They tell their story as a witness. But that's not what witnesses do in the courtroom. TV's probably ruined more witness testimony than anything else because people think, oh, well, I saw that on TV. I know how to do this. No, they don't. I worked with, with the witnesses on important cases for days on end to make sure they understood how to answer the question. Don't, and I have to be honest, my wife is one of the worst. You know, if you ask her about breakfast, she's going to tell you about lunch and dinner. In a, in a courtroom, <laughs> you can't do that. If you're asked about breakfast, you talk about breakfast only. If you're asked about lunch, you talk about lunch only. And then only if you're asked about dinner, do you even mention dinner? It's not our natural way of thinking and communicating. So if people can learn how to do it, if people can actually watch YouTube videos on how to testify, there are some great, very short videos, how to be a great witness. And it's basically be honest, keep your answers short and simple. Always, always, always tell the truth, going back to being honest and don't exaggerate. Don't ever, ever exaggerate. If you don't know, say you don't know. If you don't remember, say you don't remember. I think if more people would kind of learn how to do that, they wouldn't be as fearful about going into court. Because believe me, if you've spent as much time as I know you have, and I know I have training our dogs, you are an expert in your dog. You're going to be able to testify very, very well and communicate that to a jury so that they will believe that you're, everything you tell them. People get so nervous and torqued up by the fact that they're going to be questioned by somebody else. You know, oh my gosh, what's he going to ask me? That, that they kind of tie themselves up in knots. And it's really not that hard. Um, I've never met any defense attorney that was any more brilliant than anybody else in the courtroom. Never met a prosecutor that was any more brilliant than anybody else in the courtroom. But the really good ones can communicate very well and they can get the juries to understand. If you can, if you can get that emotional connection, that's what makes a really good defense attorney or prosecutor. And some of them are very, very good at that. You're going to convince a jury as a witness by being truthful and honest. And the other thing I like to tell people is slow down when you're talking, don't talk so fast 
that your words just run together because you're hyper nervous and you're in a completely foreign, it's a completely foreign environment. Most people have never seen the inside of a courtroom and I, I cannot completely understand why they wouldn't want to, but it does help if you'll go in and just watch 20, 30 minutes of any trial going on and you'll see how uninspiring it is. I mean, it's really mostly boring. Um, there's a judge, there's a court reporter, there's two attorneys and there's somebody sitting in the middle who's the accused. And then there's people over there listening to the whole story. That's the jury. And that's really it. It's, it's nothing dramatic for the most part, but people get themselves so worked up about it that they, <laughs> they go in to testify and they can hardly get their name out of their, out of their mouth. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's great information. And I, I think one main takeaway that I have is, uh, that we shouldn't allow your wife to listen to this because earlier you mentioned Sports <laughs> Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. Now you, you admit that she talks too much. So we'll have to be careful with the distribution of this episode. <laughs> but, but yeah, just especially when you talk about seminars, that is really one of the things that, that's really one of my great passions, especially for people on SAR teams out there that are maybe they don't have access to other SAR teams. And you really don't know what is good until you go to a seminar and see how other teams and dogs operate. I remember I went to a seminar recently and I was talking to an individual and she was talking about her team's processes and, and how they started the dog and, and just none of it made sense. And I was listening to her and some of the other handlers were listening to her and we, we told her, hey, none of this is right. But she would not have known that unless she had attended the, the seminar and gotten that feedback. For, so for people out there, definitely, especially if you're early in your career, if you just don't know what is what, find a seminar. They are absolutely across the country. They're usually held in the spring and the fall, and you will absolutely have the opportunity to meet other handlers from across the country and really see what is good. If you're not sure if your dog is the right dog, if it has the right drive, the right motivation, et cetera, go to a seminar and I can guarantee you, you'll see dogs and you look, you'll look at a dog and say, yep, I don't want my dog to do that. And you may see other dogs and say, wow, that, that is, a, that's the standard. So I couldn't emphasize that point enough. So taking up enough of your time, but one question I do want to ask before we adjourn, and I want to give everyone who's kind enough to come onto this podcast, the opportunity to answer this question, any moments in, in your search and rescue career, maybe a story or two that, that, that really stuck out in your mind and were really amazing that you'd want to talk about with the listeners today? Yeah, I, I have to, I was in Atlanta. My dog wasn't certified yet. So she wasn't the, she wasn't the search dog. And we were, we were searching for clues to two young men that went missing vehicle was found in the area. There was a vacant field next to a storage, one of those storage places. I forget what they're called, climate controlled storage. So we searched the field uh, and I was, I was on a team with a lady that had a Malinois and we, we didn't really find anything, but we did find a plastic bag that was tied up in a knot and thrown in this field. And it looked like it, all it had in it was a coffee, a uh, used coffee cup, old coffee mug and a t-shirt with some stains on it. We thought, well, that's kind of weird. Why would somebody tie that up in a bag and just throw it up here? And we also found a broken flip phone, broken cell phone that looked relatively intact, except the, the top was broken off. And so we got to thinking, well, how did this get up here in, in this field? And we looked down the hill and there's the storage unit. And we thought, well, you know, I bet if somebody just tossed these things up here thinking, oh, I'll just throw these up over the fence. Nobody will find it. 
maybe in our, maybe our missing guys are in those storage units down there. And they had been missing for, I think it was several months at the time. So pretty relatively certain they were deceased at this point. Well, sure enough, we went down to the storage units and we're walking around and, and the dog alerted and turns out that we found the two missing people and they had been murdered. And so it led to a whole investigation that somebody that would have never gone to justice or would have would have at least escaped justice for several years was brought in. And that that was my first real search that I went on that I felt like I contributed something and I felt like I was a part of rather than just kind of working the radios and keeping track of people and, and, and that kind of thing, doing logistic stuff. So, so that, that left a really big impression on me. Um, yeah, that's incredible. So just to be clear, the missing individuals were inside of one of the, the locked storage units, I'm assuming? Yes. Uh, okay. Drug deal had gone bad. They were shot and killed and stuffed in a storage unit, which I mean, mm. if you're going to stuff a body, I would think there's a lot better places to do it than a storage unit that's active with people coming and going. The smell is pretty bad once we got down there. So it was pretty obvious. Yeah. And you're paying for it every month. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't seem yeah. like the best no, idea. <laughs> no, nobody said criminals were bright, but yeah. anyway, yeah. yeah. And then the other one, the, the my favorite one is is the, the search I did with you. Last February, we had a, a elderly lady that had gone a walk walk away from her home but she couldn't walk very fast so you know I, I'm, I'm telling you something you already know but for the viewer for the listeners you realize that because she couldn't walk fast you saw a video of her that she had to be in the area and the police were just absolutely convinced they had searched everywhere she wasn't there you guys are wasting time don't need to look over there and luckily you were savvy enough to not believe them and knew better and we walked around a little bit with a couple of officers trailing and then your dog hit. And I remember shining that flashlight on that lady and thinking, what is that trash bag? Cause she wore that, yeah. uh, yep. that vest, that uh, puffy jacket vest thing that looked like a trash bag. And then your dog just made a beeline right for her. And I thought, Holy cow, we found her, you know, God, that was the best feeling <laughs> in the world. Because I don't know if you remember, it was getting below freezing that night. And, yes. and she, she was, I thought she was dead when we got to her. And I couldn't get a response out of her. And then finally, when she she blinked at me and I saw she was moving, I realized, you know, okay, she's alive now, but man, she was close. That was a close one. So that was, that is, I still tell that story to everybody I come across, man. That was the best feeling ever, just finding her and being able to help her. Yeah, you know, it, it was incredible. And it's funny, I don't think you and I have ever actually spoken spoken about that search until this moment. So that last part, I didn't, I didn't actually know. So for those of you out there who do search and rescue, you know, once my once the dog finds the person, I'm busy rewarding my dog. So I didn't uh, do any patient care at all. Kelly and, and then the officers that were with us went up and did the patient care. Uh, so I didn't know that that part. So I'm, I'm that that's really interesting to hear. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I mean, I, I was absolutely convinced when she didn't move that she was gone. And I thought, oh, boy, we're too late. But she yeah. slowly came around. She was just hy hypothermic and she was close. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been great, Kelly. I really appreciate the time and hopefully the listeners appreciate it as well. So one of the things that I'll offer to the listeners, since Kelly is now retired, he has plenty of time <laughs> on his hands. So if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me. I'll put contact information in the show notes and then you can reach out on our Facebook page and hopefully we can bring Kelly back on back on again someday to, to talk about you know how to write search reports how to create your training logs etc how to do uh, courtroom testimony but in the interim if you have any questions just reach out to me 
via the Hunt Fine Alert Facebook page, and we'll be happy to pass those questions to Kelly, and hopefully we help some SAR handlers out there become more knowledgeable about the, the world of search and rescue. Again, thank you so much, Kelly, for your time, and we greatly appreciate it. Oh, thank you. I, I think what you're doing here is, is very necessary, and this information needs to get out to people. So great job. Great. Thank you. And thank you to all the listeners who joined us today on Hunt Find Alert, and we hope that you join us for future episodes. Thank <laughs> you.